From the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey, this is the Fresh Thinking Podcast. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm glad you're here. As some of you may know, we are currently doing uh, uh, an inquiry here at the Center uh, on astrobiology, the search for life in the cosmos supported by NASA. So I can authoritatively say now there is no one better qualified in the cosmos to reply to <laughs> Ambassador McDonough uh, than uh, Professor Melissa Lane, whose writings on ancient uh, Greek political thought and Roman thought uh, and its modern implications have been universally recognized as definitive. Please welcome as a respondent to our distinguished lecturer, Professor Melissa Lane. Good afternoon. It's a great privilege to respond to the learned and humane lecture with which Ambassador McDonough has graced us this afternoon. His call to consider Greek and Roman ideas of peace as what he called a theological and anthropological question, as well as a practical challenge, brings immediate problems of international affairs permanent visions of international order, and eschatological hope into a common frame, something too seldom attempted in the academy. And his seven closing propositions outline a compelling faith in the indissoluble bonds between peace, freedom, friendship, and truth. And I'm additionally grateful to him for introducing me to Momiliano's 1940 Cambridge Lectures, which I didn't know and went to Firestone and was only able to find in Italian, um, but was able to get something from them. Um, Although, um, while Professor McDonough has uh, himself expressed a a very positive view of Augustus this afternoon. I was struck that Momiliano himself, in my rough translation, um, wrote that Augustus sought to unite peace and freedom and failed. He sought to unite the army and the Senate and failed again. So I think we could spend all afternoon discussing Augustus. On the one hand, the vision of the decrees, the literature, and art that celebrated uh, what our lecturer so elegantly called his attempted reconfiguration of a state of laws. But then on the other hand, the, uh, the later accounts of historians such as Tacitus who would see the reign of Augustus as already a time when, as he wrote in the Annals, the nature of the state was changed, equality had been discarded, and everybody focused on the emperor's commands. So there would be much to discuss about that and about so many other rich moments in the lecture. But rather than try to offer comments on every major juncture, I will focus especially on the middle section of the lecture, on the idea of a democratic peace in 5th and 4th century Greece, and in modern times. And I will ask whether the ambassador is right to find 5th century Athenian aspirations, including those of Pericles, as the key sources of the 4th century ideals of a koine erene. I will develop the suggestion that indeed he also makes 
that perhaps the profound Greek aversion to domestic stasis, faction, or civil war was perhaps as powerful a source of ideals of peace as were international aspirations. And finally, I'll ask whether ideals of a common peace today can prescind from the question of regime type. So in a way, I'll ask, what does it mean to promote a democratic peace? So first then, to Thucydides. The lecture drew from his history of the Peloponnesian War an insightful catalog of moments and forms of interpolis collaboration in the name of collective order from the conference in 424 in Sicily, to the uh, Amphictyonae of Delphi, to the formation and operation of the Greek League, led by, um, well, nominally led in military terms by Sparta, but governed by the principle of one state, one vote. And we were invited to consider a counterfactual, an abortive effort reported by Plutarch in his Life of Pericles, though Kurt Rayflaub cautions that it's of much debated authenticity, of Pericles perhaps trying to summon a peace conference at some time um, uh, before, uh, in, in the course of the ongoing conflict uh, with Sparta. And I found that the use of adverbs and other formations of koine and koinos was brilliantly observed. And we might add um, to that um, catalog one further addition that would be relevant to the later discussion of friendship in Augustine, which was the hugely influential Pythagorean proverb that friends have all things in common, which would become so important to Plato, to Moore, um, and to others. But I think there was also a more problematic side to Athenian leadership, especially in the Delian League, um, as Athens enforced tribute payments and then exploited its control of the common treasury to use them for its own adornment, among other instances of unequal influence and control, indeed, to that to which we owe the Parthenon. Indeed, some, such as the historian Julia Wilker, have argued that the ideals of autonomia, which would animate the 4th century proposals for a common peace um, that we heard discussed, did not grow out of emulation of domestic Athenian ideals, but on the contrary, out of struggles against Athenian hegemony within the Delian League. So, as Wilker notes, um, initially the Spartans were able to exploit that resentment of the Athenians, and they promised freedom for the Hellenes. But then after their crushing victory over Athens and their allies in 404, Spartan hegemony became intolerable to many cities in its turn. And only then did the claim of a universal right to autonomy for every polis on which a common peace could be based, only then did it really come into its own. So we might um, not only think about this hypothetical initiative that Plutarch ascribes to Pericles, but we might also profitably consider a first round of actual effort to establish a common peace among the Greek city-states, which was before the um, peace of Antalkidas that was um, discussed, that was actually concluded, the king's peace. This round took place in 392 to 391. 
Now, its ratification failed, but we have a striking defense of the proposals in Athens made by the Athenian diplomat and politician um, Andocides. And as Wilker writes, these included the first ever formulation of a, the idea of a koine irene and would have defined peace as a positive legal condition between states for the very first time. And the importance here of a permanent condition was that in the period up till this point, most things that we think of our pieces were actually organized as inherently time-limited truces, Um, so spondi or truces. So the idea of a permanent peace was really something new. So we might think that this was the real missed opportunity, a genuinely equal equal multilateral peace that would have been free from the weight of royal Persian hegemony as guarantor um, that the king's peace um, would eventually rely on. But other historians introduce even more caution to the way that we evaluate the king's peace and the common peace initiatives that followed. They ask, were even these truly indicative of a completely transformative aspiration to a genuinely common and permanent peace? So Polly Lowe, for example, has argued in reading uh, an, an, an inscription, probably by an Athenian of approximately 362, that this inscription envisages a common peace as She says, something which is praiseworthy, not because it is a straightforward opposite to war, and not because it allows for an absolute absence of war, but rather because it enforces a better balance between peace, or perhaps better stability, and war. So I think this view of these historians is perhaps more skeptical of the transformative power of the Koine Irene project than today's lecture, But in a broader sense, I think it shares, importantly with him, a sense of that project as what was described as, in some sense, managerial in nature, middle term in ambition. Perhaps the common language was not yet really genuinely a transformative aspiration to a permanent peace, falling short of those transformative aspirations that either Augustus or Augustine would later espouse. Indeed, as Lowe observes, the Athenian's goddess, Irene, who was mentioned, um, who was introduced in the aftermath of another common peace agreement in 375, seems to have been worshipped by annual, sorry, by, excuse me, by annual sacrifices performed by the city's elected generals. So the thought is, we have a goddess of peace, but we worship her um, led by the generals. Um, the common peace does not abolish war. So this brings me to my second point. For if what we might loosely call international war was an always recurrent prospect envisaged even in the worship of peace, the aspiration to domestic harmony and unity was perhaps more profound and more truly transformative. The revulsion from stasis or civil war, the longing for civil peace, is treated by Plato, for example, as a profound and also indeed as an obvious political truth. So his whole argument for the urgency of avoiding civil war in one's soul, which animates the tripartite psychology of the Republic, relies on the self-evidence of the desirability of avoiding civil war in one's city. 
So it's striking that Plato's beautiful city of the Republic, his Callipolis, is built indeed on the expectation of foreign wars. The guardians have their origin in the group needed to fight those wars. Um, and, of course, um, the desire for luxury in which the fevered city originates is fed by offensive wars and requires defensive wars also to protect itself. So it's interesting that Plato's word term that we often politely translate as guardians, um, the fulakes, literally means guards, military guards. And we might uh, compare the coinage of the term in Xenophon's Poroi, which was mentioned in the lecture. Um, there's a new term there coined the peace guards, the Ereno uh, fulakes. So perhaps the aspiration to domestic peace was always stronger than the aspirations to international order. And that brings me to my final point, which is the prospects for international order in a league of equal and autonomous states, which the ambassador finds at least nascent in Greek thought and practice and compared to the vision of Woodrow Wilson for the League of Nations. And my concern here is really to raise the question, what do we mean by a democratic peace? In what sense was the League of Nations a democratic peace project? Um, it, even if it was inspired in some ways by internal democratic principles, the idea of the League was that it would be indeed a League of all states, not only the democracies. And so I want to ask the question, what do we really mean and expect from a league which is genuinely one of autonomy for all states, as indeed the United Nations now is, um, as opposed to putting special emphasis in its structure on democracies? And my concern here comes from the historian Adam Tooze's recent reflections on the project of Wilsonian peace in his book, The Deluge, The Great War, and the Remaking of Global Order. Tooze argues that Wilson pushed for a league that would unite all nations, regardless of their regime types, and indeed would afford them all a southern inflected version of individual self-determination. So it's in fact that slogan from the American South um, and its efforts to um, achieve self-determination, of course, which failed um, in the American Civil War, that he takes to be the Wilsonian version of Greek autonomia. And Tooze contrasts that project with the alternative aims at, um, of men like Georges uh, Clemenceau. So Clemenceau is often pictured as the cynical, old-school European realist contrasted with Wilson, the American idealist. But Tooze points out that Clemenceau was a lifelong militant Republican and Democrat. He'd been an activist in the Dreyfus Affair. He'd been um, profoundly hostile to slavery um, and uh, in favor of um, liberty and democratic rights. Who, and we might contrast him with Wilson, whose allegiance to the American South has recently been intensively debated here in Princeton. So Clemenceau's demand was, in a sense, genuinely for a peace led by democracies. He uh, described it as a peace that would see justice fortified, and that to achieve that would have to be governed by not by a miscellany of putatively equal regimes with weak collective ties, like the League, but an enforceable multilateral democratic alliance with powerful collective security provisions, as Tooze describes it, 
in which the leading democratic powers would have to be actively engaged. So as we know, that did not happen any more than Pericles' possible vision of a peace conference actually happened. But I think it changes the meaning, or at least I'd like to invite us to reflect on what a democratic peace means. Is it enough if it's a peace inspired by democratic equality at home, and then that equality is translated into universal autonomy among different kinds of states? Or does it have to be a peace among or at least led by democracies? That is a peace in which regime types matter, um, as for Clemenceau. More recent literature on the democratic peace dividend, roughly the claim that no two democracies, when properly defined, have ever gone to war with one another, has likewise put the question of regime type back at the center of international politics. And so it leaves us perhaps with an eighth question or reflection to add to our list of seven, and that would be, can there be a stable peace um, without democracy, not among democracies. Years of tolerating or fostering dictatorships may buy temporary peace, but do so only by poisoning the soil in which an eventual post-dictatorship peace will have to grow. In conclusion, I cannot do justice to the depth of theological reflection in the final part of today's lecture. But as a Jew, perhaps I can close with the ideal of shalom. As Michael Walzer has observed, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, derives from a root that indicates completion, wholeness, or perfection. As for Augustine, peace or shalom in its fullest sense is an eschatological or messianic hope, not something that can be fully realized in human society today. And yet the aspiration to that complete peace is constantly invoked in Jewish prayer and Hebrew scripture. While full peace may, beyond, may be beyond our immediate grasp, reflection on our full nature, especially when done with the erudition of our lecturer today, is central to the human story from classical and Jewish and Christian antiquity to our own time. Thank you.